0: Pledge allegiance to the flag while they emptied out the mag Taking knee for the politics, for the politics. got him on the knees, now just suck it. Whoa, no homo, don't choke, get it right, Tony Romo. <laughs> yeah, that was kinda raw, wasn't it? Finesse words all day for the fun of it. Nowadays no one cares, cause a man can't say and get away with No punishment, ah, but don't sit well with me. I lost change, but it's still incomplete. Gotta be more radical than Malcolm. Sing out all possible outcomes. Trump sparking. School's marksman. got wall fires that's sparking. Can't forget kids are starving, but they the only folks marching. How much longer will this linger? Stacking problems like Jenga. Issues piss life with stingers. And I'm out two fingers. Good afternoon, everybody. What is going on? It is your boy Hollywood, and we are back. Two Fingers is back. I know we've been gone for quite a while, but, uh, you know, life just happens sometimes. Today we have a special show for you all. Today is going to be a Hardy and Sons episode today. So my co-host today is Gator, Mr. Gary Hardy. How you doing today, man? What's going on, my family, my friends, my peoples? Hey, hey, hey. I know, right? You sound like Bernie Mac over there. What's going on, America? <laughs> And so, as I've told you, it's just going to be a hearty and sun. So, Ron is currently not going to be available today for the show. She actually Aww. just – Oh. I don't even know how we're going to do that one. <laughs> I don't even know if we have one for that. But, uh, unfortunately, you know, she had her wisdom teeth pulled. So, she's uh, down and out for Ouch. the council. Don't wish that upon nobody. But, uh, yeah, like I told you, we were we were kind of out for – about two weeks now, and mostly because we've had a lot of people inquire and brings a lot of things to light, pretty much talking about the different things that's going on in society right now, dealing with Black Lives Matter and coronavirus, but mostly it's around the Black Lives Matter and more so Black Lives versus All Lives Matter movements. And so we really took our time, delve into a couple of ideas and did a lot of research to bring this special edition show to you all. So this, this show is going to be more of an educational show. We really want to educate a lot of people out there. Um, we would like to thank and, you know, show gratitude to people who brought things to our attention or brought inquiries to us so we can, you know, better educate ourselves as well. So Harder Boy, you ready for it?
1: Yeah, let's go, man. Like you said, we really want to expand, you know, our hor- horizons. Both uh, on both sides, you know, educate the people as well as do the research and we were educated as well. So, yeah, this is a a special edition.
0: All right. So, like I said, we're headed to the chalkboard. So please get your pens, your notepads, get ready at your desk and be prepared. We're about to take you out of school today. So we while we were doing a lot of research, we came upon a gentleman by the name of Sean Rochester he actually presented a book in one of his presentations and speeches that he gave to, you know, a couple of different uh, universities and to the Google corporation. The book is called black tax and it really just dives into a, a deeper understanding of why African-Americans today are at such a disadvantage, you know, in society. Why do they feel so oppressed? Why are they, at such a disadvantage in life, trying to make it. I know a lot of people are always talking about, oh, well, you know, this country wasn't built just solely on black people's backs. You know, people came over with absolutely nothing. You know, what's the saying, Hardy, with the bootstraps?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, you work hard and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But also, uh, we love all part of that, that- that title, brother, is Black Tax, the Cost of Being Black in America. That says a lot.
0: Yes, sir. I was going to use that a little bit later, but I'm glad you brought it out. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. And so one of the philosophies that he developed is this idea of PHD. And the idea of PHD is an acronym, and it stands for Purchase, Hire, and Deposit. And I want you guys to just think about that a little bit right now, Um and just keep that in the back of your mind as we walk you along this journey that we're about to take, because it'll become more and more important as we get towards the end. And then we'll finally, you know, explain it. But like I said, this is gonna be a this is gonna be a journey. We're gonna be here for a little bit. So please do not grow impatient with us. Actually sit down, listen, and understand it fully. And then we will advise you to go actually check you know these YouTube channels and these YouTube videos out as well as you know, dive deeper into the book as well. We actually just purchased the book this past weekend and began reading it. And it's got some good stuff in there. So, Hardy Boy, you want to start with the beginning?
1: Uh, what is it? The slavery, 100% tax on the
0: enslaved persons' labor. Uh, and slavery this- was between, let's keep it pretty much clear with America, 1619, to the emancipation in 1865, correct? Right.
1: And, um, you know, it just identified the, what they call that, the net value and, right. and how much it costs or, or what what we generate. Again, we, we're talking about historical black tax. So for all that hard labor from those, how many years is that? like?
0: 150 close years. To, well, from 1619 to 1865, was close to 250. 250 years. years. Correct. 250. 250 years.
1: So the the numbers came out according to Mister uh,
0: Rochester. Rochester
1: to about effectively the rate of tax imposed on our black people from that time period came out to about 50
0: trillion dollars. And this is a hundred percent tax. Slavery. So understand what tax means is that 100% tax means you're not making any profit, meaning anything you own, anything you have is not yours, including yourself. And I think that's a key when we talk about this 100% tax of slavery is that anything you own, possess, you do, including yourself as a being is not yours.
1: The black man was property, literally. And anything he produced from his labor went to the owners. He had nothing. And
0: so with this in mind, you know, Sean Rochester brought a quote. He said, it is difficult to solve a problem if people think the problem doesn't exist. Therefore, you are the problem. Deep, real deep. So within that slavery, let's talk about the worth of slaves. So my dad kind of gave you the value of slavery in those roughly 250 years. That's, that was the value of slavery at that time. So in the year of 1860, let's, let's start there, 1860, four million slaves, four million slaves were worth $22 trillion from 1860, in the year 1860, 1865. That was the worth of 4 million slaves throughout the entire South. Is if you that could, today's money or less? Right. Well, yeah, that's looking at if you were to put, a, put a, a, number amount or, a number on it from today's aspect, 4 million slaves during that time was $22 trillion. Okay. Now, if we look at the growth in our race's number, 45 million African Americans, those slaves were worth 15 times more than African Americans are today. All of us in the United States. African Americans today are 1.5 trillion dollars. So the net worth
1: of 45 million African-Americans today is worth $1.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. And the value of 4 million slaves in 1860 was $22 trillion. Are you kidding me? So 4 million. So that's like 40 plus million difference Mm -hmm. in bodies and human beings Mm -hmm. working And they generated that kind of income, $22 trillion, compared to the $1.5 trillion today with 45 million African-Americans.
0: And understand what net worth means. Net worth means what you are worth, what your assets are, and your liquidity. That is all accumulated into net worth. And you're telling me 45 million African-Americans today are only worth 1.5 1.5 trillion to the 4 million back in 1860s.
1: And I think the lesson today will define or break down why our value is equal or less than in today's society as opposed to uh, 150 plus years ago when we were just grind, grind, grind. We had no no ownership of our own labor or of our own of our own selves. So this I think we will be able as we go through this you will be able to learn or see why 4 million slaves or black people in the 1860s were able to generate or their value was 22 trillion dollars as opposed to the value of 45 million
0: today. So that's the economical implications that we kind of brought to the table. So with that in mind, let's let's talk about it a little bit. So Abraham Lincoln, of course, established the Emancipation Proclamation, which set the slaves free. Right. So with that being said. So you saying, damn, I knew it was hard and I knew it
1: was bad, but I did not know it was that bad. However, it did come to an end.
0: Right. So we're like, okay, the slaves were freed. Now we're moving on to the next phrase. You know, now they can do something and go out into the world and make something of themselves. Well, with the war being ended, the union took over the Confederates land. But the idea was to redistribute the land they took from the Confederacy to those slaves, the new found the, the new found free slaves. And the idea was called 40 acres and a mule, right? So 40 acres and a mule given to 4 million slaves, that's roughly 160 million acres. 160 million acres across the entire South. And an acre is worth about three to $6,000. But that never came into fruition. So if you do the math on that, that is about a trillion dollars that was denied to the newfound free slaves. Right. About 90 billion a year. So a trillion dollars was denied to the slaves. And as my dad said, slavery during those 250 years was 50 trillion dollars. They couldn't even get 2% of reparations back from that $1 trillion. They just were denied that altogether. But however, the union who won, they can't just hold on to the land. So what they did was they redistributed the land back to the South, white people of the South. And then the government came out with this idea called the Homestead Act.
1: Right. So that would apply to migrants, too. So they redistribute the land that they had conquered or, you know, winner takes the spoils. So now the losers, the South, no harm done, no foul. So they gave the land back to them. And any migrants could also get in on this deal. This is what is known as, what is
0: it, the Homestead Act? Yes. So the Homestead Act, the way that worked to is- The government issued out 246 million acres of land to 1.5 million white families. And that just does not disclose itself to the Southerners. But like he said, immigrants, white immigrants that migrated to America. So you could literally come here with nothing on your back. Get a piece of land. And the way the Homestead Act worked was... If you got a piece of land, you would stay on that land for five years. And that would roughly equate to a million dollars per family. And with that million dollars per family, if you stay on the land for five years, you'd be naturalized or become a citizen of America. Wow. So that's how the Homestead Act worked. It was a way of expanding the country west, but also... You know, allowing people to come here with literally nothing but the clothes on their back, gain a million dollars for their family and a citizenship. And flourish.
1: That's a hell of a spot. And again, the 40 acres and a mule that was promised to the black people was denied. That never happened. So this again, 246
0: million acres, which equates to one point six trillion So instead of giving black slaves a trillion dollars, 2% of reparations back, they decided to give it to back to the South and any white immigrant families who migrated to the land, the ability to flourish and start anew and expand the country.
1: So that's the first step in helping migrants stand up and get, you know, a starter kit able to, you know, grow, come to America, you know, uh, the American dream, be able to live the American dream. Now, this is the first step. And keep in
0: mind, this is what's crazy about it. Roughly 93 million white families, white American families today directly benefited from the Homestead Act. Meaning your grand great-grandfather, Your father's dad, your mom's dad, like directly. I'm not talking about cousins, second cousins removed. No. The bloodline from son, dad, grandfather, great grandfather, 93 million white American families are direct beneficiaries of the Homestead Act.
1: This is inherited wealth. Down through generations, through generation, past through generation, through generation. Now, keep in mind, the slaves or the black folks still don't have, you know, as they say, a pot nor
0: a window to throw it out of. Nope. So, the Homestead Act happened. Let's talk about the impact of the Civil War and how that impacted the South directly, but not solely the South, but the whole world The that, cotton industry... Oh, yeah. You want to go ahead? No, go ahead. That's crazy. It, what, those numbers. Yeah. And the the cotton industry... All right. So, 60% of the U.S.'s export was cotton. Meaning, out of all the experts we gave, whether it was oil, silk, harvest, cotton was 60% of our exports. However... The U.S. produced 80% of the global's cotton expert. So just the cotton industry solely. Out of 100% of the cotton industry in the world, 80% of that came from the U.S. So you can imagine the famine and the excruciating pain that caused the world when the slaves were freed.
1: Oh, yeah. They were they were like, what are we going to do now? I mean, cotton, the cotton market was like or in today's time, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? What is it? What what is America up to now? And what
0: was crazy about that is that 20, roughly 20 million people around the world worked in the cotton industry. A million people lost their jobs immediately due to the Confederacy losing the war. Immediate, And that was 50% of the South's value were the slaves and cotton, 50%. So
1: what is America going to do to put their people back to work? That's the cry from around the world. What are we going to do? What are they going to do?
0: So we've kind of graduated from this idea of slavery, right? Abe Lincoln ended it. There's no more slavery. So we should be able to fix ourselves or make something happen. But as my dad said, the world was crying for an answer. So this is what led to the Jim Crow Act. The Jim Crow Act was a solution to the Cotton family. And not solely that, but to also help with maintaining African-Americans to still work for free. But what's the problem? I
1: mean, you guys are free. You know, you, we, we, we're setting you up to go to work. But the Jim Crow Act literally was a system of laws and customs reinforced with extreme violence designated to reinstate 100% tax on sharecroppers'
0: labor. So, so you we're talking about this 100% tax again. Oh, my gosh. 100% tax, that's slavery. Sharecroppers weren't slaves, were they? No, they weren't, technically.
1: But uh th- again, the Jim Crow law, as we go through here, I'll let you, the guy, the listening audience, determine if that was still, you know, a form of slavery or if it was a hundred percent tax or just what the the bottom line was, because the numbers don't lie.
0: So the way the Jim Crow Act worked was. Plenty of white farmers or planters, depending on how you want to use the term, had land, right? The Homestead Act was given back to a lot of Southern or white farmers, but they had land and needed someone to work. You know what I'm saying? Like land doesn't work without labor. It just, it can't, it can't happen. So the Jim Crow Act offered the job of sharecropping. And the way the sharecropping worked was you would get land and you would be provided the tools, the seeds, any other expenses that you needed to help grow crops upon this land. Keep
1: in mind, the terms and conditions were set by the white landowners. So they got to set
0: your profit and your expenses. And if your expenses... And your profit were at zero and you broke even that was a great year but nine times out of ten your expenses succeeded past your profits but the catch is
1: crops don't come in for, for a full year so you got to work it don't come in tomorrow or you know the next day or the next month crops are for a full year of labor and harvesting and bringing in the crops, and you got to. So who's gonna carry you on your food and shelter? The landowner is carrying you, the sharecropper, which in this case is the black man. Again, he's he's old or he's indebted to the landowner for his shelter, his food. You know, he's fronting him, he's, he's spotting him, or he's uh, loaning him this uh, resources in order to survive for that full year. You know, your in the homes, uh, your water,
0: your transportation, all that. You got to pay that back. That's not free. And keep in mind, the land wasn't abundant either. The land was, there was nothing out there. So there was nothing for you to at least have to start off with. No, you were starting at ground zero, meaning you had to start the harvest.
1: Dude, a little story, just not to get too far off track, but I am a descendant of sharecroppers. I was the last generation born in Thomasville, Georgia, AKA, even smaller than that, Metcalf, Georgia. So again, the city is Thomasville, Georgia, that you claim, because they got paved streets and lights. So you claim that. But really, you from Metcalf, Georgia, which has dirt roads, the whole nine. These are small forms of the Blick plantation, you know, it up from the big plantation that they're speaking of. So as a kid, I was the last generation, my grandfather, I, you know, and my grandfather's home that I, I was born the last one on this uh on this land, out of all the grandkids, so to speak. So You know, I was there until a little shorty, you know, elementary school. I'm running around having a good time. You know, I'm you know, running through the watermelon fields, you know, these strawberries, you know, these pecan trees. I'm thinking all this is ours, dude. I'm having a great time. My cousins from Florida would come up and visit and they would have a good time. You know, they come up for the summer. You know, everybody goes to their grandma for summer, right? So they would come up from Florida for the summer. And, you know, I'll just show out. i just have them ripping and running all through the streams, all this. Cause this is our land. We live in large, right? I just know this is our stuff, you know. But his three sons, my, my grandfather had three sons that were still there, and they would harvest the land, you know, dry the tractors, pick the farm. You know, I just thought this was the way of, of, of life. We got it like that. We got this big farm. We doing it. So tragically, however, my grandfather Was fishing you know you go out and fish you know on your boat so you put a a, a line in the water and then you go to the other side and you drop another line so this line drifted out into the water and I know he's done it a thousand times just went out into the pond got his pole and, and got back on the boat well this time he didn't make it back onto the boat so long story short because the head of the household, this sharecropper, was no longer available to man the house and to con- continue to do this sharecropping labor, to continue to do the labor head of the household, do you know we had to literally pack up and move to where we had migrated down to Florida? The, the other family, my moms, my aunts, my cousins, had all migrated to Florida. That was why, and it took me years, it was years later that I figured out why we had to leave when my grandfather passed away, that we were literally sharecroppers. So when you see us or hear us do these uh, episodes, man, we are doing it from where we come from. We're not going to ask you to do anything we don't know about or haven't done, man. You know, this is real stuff. This is real talk.
0: Yeah, man. And. You know, and that's how the contracts were. They would literally, if you can provide, they would give your contract to someone else who could do it. And then you still had to pay on the contract. And so, you know, thinking today in terms of contracts, I'm not signing that contract, right? Well, they had a law for that under Jim Crow called the vagrancy laws. And you could be put in the state or county jails if you did not pay, you know, on that contract. If you did not, if you did not provide or pay or continue to work service, even though they gave your contract to someone else, you would get put in state or county jail. So okay, we smart. We're going to outsmart the system, right? All right. So I'm going to sign the contract, but I'm not going to do nothing. Well, they have a contract. They have a law for that called the contract enforcement laws. Meaning, if you break the contract that you signed. You will be placed in the state or county jail. So now you're damned if you don't sign the contract and you're damned if you do sign the contract. So you like, all right, they put me in the county jail or the state jail. But that's cool. No, I really don't got to do nothing and I get to eat three square meals a day. Hmm. If Jim Crow don't do it again, they have a law for that. Called convict leasing. And the thing about convict leasing is that they could literally take you and rent you back out to the same farmer or planter you were not trying to work for, or a corporation you weren't trying to work for, and they could rent you and sell you there, and you would have to work there for free. And the mortality rate on that was 50%. So you were 50% going to live or die. And the reason this is so sickening and so sad is because if you were a slave, yeah, a slave owner would beat you near to death or, you know, if they had to kill you, they would have to kill you. But really, they would rather keep you around for 10, 15, 20 years to keep your work, your servitude. They They don't want to waste their money and, you know, just have you dead. Now that's a That's a wasted asset. But here, under the convict leasing law, they don't care about you. They only want you for like six to 24 months, which is two years. And you know, if you come up dead, you come up dead. It's whatever. But you either gonna work for free or you're just gonna die. So you pick your poison. And
1: because of that that particular portion of the law, the convict leasing, the deaths went up fifty percent death rates, man. Because as he stated, we could just lent you after we were finished with you. Uh you you it it
0: trust me, what what the guy said, it it He said he said this lasted for 75 years. So the Homestead Act went from 1865 to roughly 1870 during that time. When they came up with the Jim Crow Acts, Jim Crow went from 1870 to 1945. So for 75 years, there were roughly 4,000 lynchings recorded, keyword recorded that we know of, meaning for 75 years, someone was lynched once a week.
1: And dude, say, trust me, you will get the hint, yo. Everybody in
0: that community, everybody in that state, your neighbors, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your brother, your sister, y'all will understand and get that hint. And conform, basically, is what it's
1: saying, because those are the conditions that you are up against. So
0: continue on, son. So the, the sick thing about this was, for example, Alabama, the state of Alabama utilized the convict leasing as a lucrative way to make profit. Out of 100% of their profit, 20% came from convict leasing, meaning free labor. And you
1: see them in the movies, or I can attest to that, you see what they call the movie, a chain game. Yeah, the movie Life, right? Oh with striped wonderful. suits and all that just just harvesting, just working, just just free labor, man, really.
0: And so bringing some numbers back to perspective, when Abe Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and freed those four million slaves, the South lost about 22 trillion dollars. trillion. However, during the time of the Jim Crow Act, they made back $15 trillion off the descendants of slaves. So you tell me Jim Crow made 70% of what they lost Without naming it slavery, but by enforcing the Jim Crow laws, and that's why they call this slavery by another name. So hold up, hold up. You telling me that
1: slavery? Those are the those are the numbers separate me from being enslaved for. However many years, what was that? Something like 250 years, or 150 years. So I was enslaved literally with as as not being a human and just that's all I was. I was somebody else's property. But after emancipation, I'm putting up the same money
0: and, and, and value and I'm free. Right. And I was born into freedom. I wasn't born a slave. You got to keep in mind, there's are descendants too.
1: Oh, my goodness. These are the kids. The children now are are still making and going through the obstacles and going through the hurdles and going through the
0: the, the bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And you got to keep in mind, a lot of people are like, okay, so the other $7 trillion, where did that go? Well, think about it. 4,000 lynchings happened. And those were the ones recorded. So how many were unrecorded? Okay, so you have those black people whose deaths are rolling around. Then in that space of proclamation, some free slaves may have ran north to the Union. Got oh, away. no doubt. That's me. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out of here, man. So, yeah, you got that to equate into the system. And then, like I said, when they divvied back some of the land back to these white planters and farmers, these white planters and farmers can afford to own slaves. It was cheaper to rent sharecroppers. So instead of owning your own slaves and multiple of them, you can only rent about maybe one to two per farmer and planter. So the efficiency and the effectiveness went down immensely because you have all this land but not enough people to work on it. So that's where the other seven trillion dollars kind of evaporated. So, let me understand this.
1: This is another another hurdle, or another we shall overcome moment. Mm. And again, look like I'm there's I'm, there's a bigger there's an ocean gap between me and white America. How am I to? get wealth or be able to sustain any kind of lifestyle or progress in any way in America. And we up to what
0: year is it? Well, this is between 1870
1: and 1945 and 1945, dude, are you serious? So that that's not a long time ago. Most of our grandparents or my dad, your grandparents, my dad was born in nineteen thirty-seven.
0: My dad and mom's, so mm-hmm. they in here. And also, you got to keep in mind that World War Two ended in nineteen forty-five. So you had two world wars also involved in that that we fought in as well. Exactly. So, and we still came home to this. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know when people say, "Oh." Everybody migrated to America. Everybody, uh, you know, pulled themselves up by bootstraps. And, you know, as the gentleman said, million a million hell, dollars
0: is a hell of a bootstrap. Right. If you get to come to a new land and you start with a million dollars for your family and land and get citizenship, I don't even think black people who lived here, who were brought over here, who was born into this country, even got citizenship. Oh, absolutely not. Ain't no slaves, got no citizenship and no land. And... Europeans can come over, get a million dollars and some land. That's a that's a
1: that's a pretty dope head start to me. And I think that leads us into the next part about, you know, coming to what, Ellis Island, coming in that way in New York. And how their education, if
0: you would. Right. So now i kind of going to the next part. All right, Lamar. Slavery happened, but y'all made it through. You know, Jim Crow law, I knew it happened. I didn't know it was that long. I thought it was only maybe three to maybe even the most ten years. I didn't know it was decades. But, hey, man, that was a tough time, but y'all made it through. And a lot of y'all went to school. You know, W.E. Du Bois was a very well-educated man. You know, just granddaddy. Right?
1: We got granddaddy. He worked hard. He did some things. Right, You guys had education.
0: Well, let's elaborate on that, shall we? So the way education came about in the South is a lot of the white planters and farmers wanted to expand, but to do so, you also have to expand with the slaves or the sharecroppers and the black people in the South. So what they did was they began to create schools for black people under the separate but equal idea.
1: But this is called human capital development. So we're going into, you know, modern modern times now. We're trying to up the game. America is trying to up its game.
0: Yep. So we're, we're expanding. And so education is called the great equalizer. And you would think it would equalize a playing field for black people, right? You would think. So, so go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Oh, go
1: ahead. So, you know, there was a time period. New York, for instance, you know, that was where a lot of people from Europe came in. You know, that what is the Statue of Liberty out there on the Ellis Island?
0: Right, Statue when of they, Liberty
1: island, island. When they saw that, they had arrived. America, the home of the free. You know that whole slogan. You know, I can go now and 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 understand. These immigrants are, you know, living, leaving, escaping from bad situations. We all get that. You know, we all understand that to the nth degree. No one is, is disputing that. And America, when you see that Statue of Liberty on Ellis Island, you have arrived. You know, opportunity is all is is wide open. That's what that symbolizes. But according to Lamar, That didn't apply to Black America or African-America or, you know, all the other names we were, you know, we have, you know, gone through stages of identification. So.
0: So, for example, we're going to give you a couple numbers. So throughout the South, the entire South, 64 public schools were created for African-Americans, not 64 in the county, not 64 in the state but through the entire stuff and know what the entire stuff was. It was from Maryland, Virginia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, all of those Mississippi, and only 64 public schools were made. With that 64 public schools being made, the ratio was usually one black teacher to every thousand black students I know a lot of us go to college and we, you know, one of the biggest things we look for is okay, well, what's the student teacher ratio? See, a lot of people don't learn well in lecture hall. A lot of people want that, you know, that that relationship, that direct contact, you know, in public schools. You you want only 20 to 30 people in the class that we can relate. And so that was most of the K through twelve schools that were built by black people and black owned. But this
1: guy. You know the president of General Education Board, which is equivalent to you know our education, what is the Department of Education in this day and age. His quote was: "The South needed Negroes educated so that they could be the best possible laborers. Laborers with the right kind of education, Negroes would be willingly work for menial jobs and open up opportunities for Southern whites to work the more expert labor." and jobs so they were it was almost like you was developing them it was design right this, this systemic again is not by mistake man this is by design
0: and sarah so being the psychologist that she is she talks about how you know schooling at a young age is very important for develop, developmental this is this is the stage where you soak everything up as a sponge. So if you're growing up from birth all the way through middle school, high school, and uh, all you know is you can only work as a janitor or any other menial job. You come up thinking that way, and that's how generations and other things kind of rotated through because those people, those students, became black teachers who've been taught the next generation in that same mindset, that same thought process. So now this is just cycling over and over generationally. Man.
1: So here we are, man. We are, as you stated, uh, this is the 1900, and this is where we, you know, again, stepping up our game. And You know, during that time period in the 1920s, the population was in New York. as New York City, as you know it today, wasn't the case. New York City was entirely white. Not Not as as diverse. 97%. 50 times more was spent on education in New York than South Carolina. Right? Even though blacks were 51.4% of the state's population. Mm-hmm. So, the immigrants who came to New York have fifty times more invested in their education than black students in the South, who were born here. Keep that in mind as well. The and he's, more- as, as you he's- stated in the South, for every dollar invested to educate a black student, five to eight dollars were invested to educate a white child. And I think the guy say. You do the math. One's going to be
0: a porter, and one's going to go to Harvard. Right. One's going to be a pauper, and one's going to go to Harvard. And what a pauper is, it's just a poor person. That's literally what a pauper is. It's just a poor person. Black teachers in the South were paid only 25
1: to 34% what white teachers were paid, and white students received 50% more years of education than blacks by the age of 25.
0: So, for example... A, a white teacher will earn a dollar. A black teacher will earn a quarter. That was the salary wage gap on that. That's what teachers were being paid. Oh my black gosh. teacher versus a white teacher. A white teacher is making a dollar versus a black teacher making 25 cents. So how do I strap myself up or how do I come up by my bootstraps or work hard? When I'm already at a disadvantage, and then still given less advantages, and that's
1: what they're stating that you know researchers say. Uh, researchers say that uh, had they just did this much, you
0: know, you know the wage gap to fifty percent would be closed
1: keep your discrimination, keep your whatever, whatever, you know, keep your hate for me, but just play fair on the education.
0: The gap would have been closed. 50%. 50%. So, we could still live by separate, about separate but equal, but if the education, the investment, resources were all the same, the wage gap, will be fifty percent closer. Unbelievable. And like I said, that cycle, you know, like I said, Saran was on here. That's a devastating thing to a child is to have them believe something during the developmental stage, have them think in one way. So when they become adults. Yeah, exactly. Very ugly, man. Very ugly. This really all happened during that time. And one of the biggest things that I kind of want to touch on now and kind of close out is the idea of home ownership. Right? We would think, okay, they can build some wealth. You know, at least they can get a home. That's the greatest Credit builder, wealth builder. There is correct, Hardy. Yeah, that's that's it. There for as far as the little
1: people or any uh, American, is that's the first uh, big item that creates your sense of purpose and you feel a part of the American dream is to be a homeowner.
0: So they have something
1: for that, did they?
0: Come on, man. We've been on this
1: already. You know they got something for everything. So wait, wait, wait. My edu—what was it? So I, I went through slavery. Mm-hmm. I went through Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. My education is short. Uh, what is it? But equal, separate. separate but equal. So I'm still. How am I still here? I mean, come on. I'm still standing. And you're telling me now I have, you know, all these are the American, this is the American way. I mean, every, every stage or every phase of this is how you survive and how America was built, literally. How America came to be, literally. You know, slavery, Jim Crow, uh, education, and now I'm still struggling. I'm still trying to create some value in myself, for myself, for my family, for my community. So home ownership has got to be the way to go.
0: Well, like I said, the world wars have happened. Jim Crow is currently going on. So between 1930s and the 1960s, you know, the government provided... $120 billion worth of subsidies to homeowners. So that equates to about a trillion dollars today. All I have to say is less than 2% of that went to Black American families while 20 plus million Americans Europeans who migrated benefited directly off of this off the subsidies. So you're telling me I've lived here I was born here and I only get 2% of the subsidies whereas people who are escaping you know due to religious freedoms or you know, different beliefs or, or new opportunities, they come here and get directly benefited because they're white Europeans. And so you're like, okay, so these subsidies are out there and the government are providing them. I'm a black young man with a family and I would like to get a home to you know, help build my wealth and my credit. You know, I'm gonna go ask the federal housing administrators. Refused to do it. Okay. Financial institutes and banks asked for a loan. They refused to give black people loans. And while we're on the loans with banks and home ownership, I'd advise you guys to check out the movie, The Banker uh, with Neil Long in it. It was really good on Apple TV. You might be able to find it elsewhere. Samuel Jackson. Yep. That was just a ploy, you know, kind of slide that in there while we're on the topic. So go check that out. Um, You know, home developers, real estate agents and other residents, I'm trying to get in on this $120 billion subsidies and I can only get 2% and I need it. I'm from here and I can't get in on it. And you're telling me that by the end of this period 1960, less than 1% had mortgages, Black Americans. Less than 1% had mortgages in the entire United States nation. Out of all the mortgages in the country, less than 1% belonged to Black Americans. So where
1: do you go? You uh, are forced into what we call ghettos? Right, so,
0: I'm gonna tell you, yeah, I'm gonna tell you how the ghettos kind of came about. Okay. And ghettos, the, the term ghetto is, is defined as involuntary living, meaning I didn't choose to live here, I was forced to live here involuntary. And that's due to redlining, but it's also due to contract sales. So the way these contract sales will work, for example, say you have a hundred installment plans, you know, a hundred installment payment plan. You make 99 payments on this house, including the down payment, but you missed the 100th. The landowner has the right to make, to keep all your payments, all 99 plus the down payment. They have the right to evict you. They have the right to sell it to someone else. And you as the person paying for the house have to keep the maintenance and the upkeep of the house until the house is handed off that whole time. Crazy. How, how are you supposed to do that if you just kicked me out the house. You keep all my money. I'm already working menial jobs. I don't have a top-notch education. And then on top of that, I got to keep the maintenance of this house for someone else coming into it. So then what the, so then what the white people started doing is they begin to sweep Or push people to a particular area. And this is kind of called redlining. Where you redesign and draw lines on the district. And you know, for example, there's the hood parts of D.C. And then there's the gentrified or the, you know, safer, I guess, terminology parts of D.C. that people live in. So some parts, they will be pushed to the ghetto. And, like I said, the ghetto is used as involuntary living. And, of course, the,
1: the price or these ghettos, for the most part, only have rental property. So, we all know those prices in the poor black communities were 50% higher or more versus outside of
0: them. And, you know, what do you do? And, you know, people are like, oh, you got to work harder, you know, try harder, you know, pull yourself up. But how can you do that in this period? And with that being said, white American families were 11 times more prosperous, wealthier than black American families born in this period.
1: So let me recount again. So you telling me I came from slavery. Mm-hmm. What was it? Uh, Homestead Act. And Homestead the- Act. Fought in the Civil War, right? Homestead Act. The Civil War ended. So I'm getting ready to blow up now. What, that was the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Yep. I'm getting ready to take off now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Jim Crow was after that? Yes, sir. And my education, separate but equal. I don't know how that go together. Separate but equal. And now you're telling me the one good thing that America thrives on as far as accumulating wealth and ownership and going for, forward and making a better life for you and your kids and your family and your the generations to follow. I'm again being denied an opportunity.
0: Yes, sir. Wow. So, you know, kind of wrapping up on you know the black tax, this is what we talk about and this is our answer to when people want to bring up, oh, America wasn't built only on the, on the backs of Black people. You know, my great-grandfather came here with nothing. He was poor, and he made something of itself. You know, you, you had the right to education just as we did. You just didn't work hard enough. You didn't work to job to get a better job. You know, like, my, this is my analogy. With all these things in place, Let's say we're at a NASCAR race. You know, white people are at the starting line. And then you got 25 cars in this race. Black people are the 25th car. And the reason I say that is because you have all these immigrants who migrated to America, who may not have started at the starting line, but received more benefits, more advantages, than the Black people who were born in the country. And then okay, we want to talk about, oh, you know, every country had slavery. America wasn't the first one that had been slavery, but slavery happened within their own country. People ran and migrated from their own country. Black people were picked up and stolen and brought to another country. So don't tell me that, oh. You know, everyone started at the bottom. We were at a disadvantage from the beginning. And still at a disadvantage even being here before others. And that's my idea of, that's why I brought this episode together of, don't be blinded. Don't allow all this other stuff around you and the things going on in life right now and where we see. My favorite my favorite thing to hear is when people go, like, oh, well, how did Oprah make it? How did Tyler Perry make it? How did all these professional athletes and stuff make millions of dollars and we voted for Obama? But my answer is if we started on the same platform, equal playing fields, how many more of us would be the Oprahs? How many more Obamas would there be? You know what I'm saying, Hardy? Like, how many more of and those diamonds in the rough would be there? And the numbers show that
1: the the patents and the inventions and it's a disservice to America. It's not that we lose out as a as a a people. America suffers, and they that was a loss for them as well because the patents and the and the, the inventions we were in on that, whether people believe it or or even know that. Again, research. You know, do your homework. You know, study, read, read. But we were in on that, and against all odds, we were able, still able to contribute to the greatness of this country, man. So, imagine if we, like you said, started on an even playing field, and we've just gone through a, a a lit a litany of our obstacles and reasons why, and, you know, have it's a disservice to the country. It's not just us as a people, but we lose out as a whole, as a, as a, as a country. That, that's the big picture here. It wasn't just us. The country lost. The country is not where it could be or should be. And, you know, that's the point we're trying to make as well. It, you, you're not. So, to stand back and say it's just us and then we whining and we we want handouts. Dude, we could, if we all did it together, we could be light years ahead. That's the point we're trying to
0: make here. We're all in this together. Definitely. And, you know, going back to my NASCAR analogy, and he pretty much summed it up, but say if I and we're in this race, and I'm at the 25th spot. And I move and pass cars, and I make it up. And I finally make it up to where, you know, white people are. The first car? The first car. I still got to now go catch the first car, who probably has a separation on the rest of the pack, and then, you know, try to even out with him. And then on top of that, what is, what is his pit crew like? This pit crew has all the best resources, has all the best gear, has the best networking. You know, I'm over here using a jack and a crank trying to lift my car up on all fours. And he over here drilling, getting out in 10 seconds. He's back on the road. I'm still over here trying to get one tire off at my pit stop. And, And that's just an analogy, but that's what I'm saying. These are these are the things he's talking about. If we got start on the equal playing ground, equal playing field, there would be such a greater service to the world.
1: And trust and believe, this is not a black and white thing, issue, or complaint. This is not black man against white man. No, by no means. This is America. That's what this is. This is America. And all, we, and all we're doing is Identifying one plat or one one dimension of America, or one one circumstance of America, compared to the other. So please don't walk away from this thinking, "Oh, they black black uh, against white." No, that's not what this is about. This is about America, and we're just trying to put some context and some 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 thought provoking conversation out there for us to understand and for us to go forward and just, you know, have the conversation.
0: That's what this is about. Definitely. And, you know, kind of just touching on a couple other things that you noticed that is around in the country. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the 30 for 30 document water on ESPN. But the idea of how Chinese people came to America and saw how, or saw the divide between black and white people, and how their conformity awarded them so much. If you look around in any big metropolis city in any state, there is a Chinatown somewhere in the corner, there's a little Italy somewhere in New England, whether it's New York, Philly. Even up in Boston, but do you see any, I don't know, what are you going to say, little Africa, soul food shops everywhere? You don't see none of those. You can't find those, you know? Like everyone else benefited, everyone else got something from America, yet we were here and still haven't received the just due that we are looking for and asking for. And that's what this episode was about. It was an educational perspective, meaning, you know, look at everything and make sure you understand everything that's going on. Don't just rely on what white America's history books tell you. I've always said it to this day. Me growing up as a black man in America, I had to know my history and America's history. And I said this last episode. White Americans don't have to have don't have to have that. They don't need that. Why? They 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 would never under they would never understand why that is reasonable. Why why is that a necessity? There's no need to have that in my arsenal my two dollars to learn about black history. It has no relation to me. And so that's why we come on this podcast and do this. And and I want people to hear this and listen to this and reach back out to us on social media and comment on the the website and the podcast and let us know what you think and bring something forth to the table that we can educate ourselves about and learn about so we can talk about it later. Because that's all this is, is to bring conversation up and address the issues of today. True. That's what it's about. But uh, before we close, I kind of want to do a little what's up with you, as we always do. Lately, I know a lot of schools have been doing Black at insert whatever university you are. Um, my school is definitely doing that right now, Black at Bentley. And I graduated class of 2017, the Centennial class, so I'm better than all the other classes out there. So I'm definitely gonna give myself a round of applause on that. Thank you. But no, all jokes aside, we, we've been doing a lot of uh, conversations. Alumni from 1980 to 2020 are have come together on how, what ways we can change the atmosphere at our school, Bentley, up in Boston. And for me personally, it's been great because I've always had a bittersweet love-hate relationship with my school, meaning I was so proud and I loved the fact that I graduated from such a prestigious school and I was afforded the opportunity for a great education at Bentley University, but I just didn't, outside of that, I just didn't feel... You know, the love or appreciation up there. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the people of color that went to my school were pretty much from up there, whether it was Boston, Maine, Connecticut. They could go home on the weekends. You know, if they got sick and tired of dealing with the prejudice and the biases at the schools, they could go back home into their communities and feel back at home and feel safe. I didn't have that luxury. I was eight and a half, nine hours away. And I was stuck up there and I had to stay in it. And I was involved in pretty much everything. All the black clubs, football teams, sports, athletics, the student life and affairs. I was pretty much in everything. And one thing that stuck out to me is this facade that Bentley portrays of diversity. And my four years there, I learned that diversity does not mean black people. You know, diversity, according to Webster, kind of, is anybody who is not a white male, that is diversity. So that includes all ethnicities that are not white. White women count as minority because they're not white males. So that was diversity. And they were portraying diversity as you know, we have different ethnic groups, but they didn't have too many ethnic groups. They only had international students. You know, I talk about it all the time. There might have been a hundred black students out of forty-five hundred students at the school, and out of that hundred black students, maybe ten to fifteen African American students. The other hundred blacks were Haitian. Jamaican, some sort of Caribbean, West Indies, from Africa, or even London, or France, whatever, those kind of Africans. But none were straight descendants from slaves. Like I said, maybe 10 to 15. And right now, one of the biggest things we're trying to incorporate is closing the gaps within minorities. And what's sad about that is we're trying to close the gaps within minorities, not between the racial at the school, but minorities, meaning all the other ethnic groups are at seven to eight percent. Black students at that school are three percent of the population. So you're telling me Asians, Middle Easterns, Hispanics, all of them are at seven to eight percent of the school. Black people as a whole are three percent of the school's population. And we're not even at the 78%. So that's just something I wanted to leave you guys with. Um, That's something that my school has been, well, my alumni, we've been talking about and discussing with one another during these times. Hardy Boy, you got anything else you'd like to add to this? So
1: yes, these, these are the conversations that we have to have. And as you stated, diversity doesn't necessarily mean Black. So someone brought it to the, 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 the forefront that, oh, you see, I'm going to donate to the diversity or I'm going to, you know, contribute here, thinking that they were given to a HBCU or a black ownership or a black store. But the caveat was just uh, diversity. So this is another smoke and mirror that, it's being used by the system. Again, the conversation is still still about systemic racism, sexism, all the isms, right? So this is just another smoke screen. When you see diversity, we automatically think black. That's not the case, as he stated. There's every everybody who somebody is all comes under that heading. So you, again, a couple of episodes ago, we said, oh, when I Google, I want to get my, my hair done or how to cook black eyed peas, I got to put the black way for black, that, for black people. I got to put that extra on there. So, the, again, this is one of those instances where when you see diversity or I want to donate to, you better say black this, black that, because just thinking by Googling diversity and that's where your money or that's where your time or that's where your energy is going to black people. That's not necessarily, necessarily the case. So again, this was a, a good episode. And, uh, I really appreciate, you know, the conversation and as you stated, we got to do more of this, you know?
0: Yes, sir. And, I would just like to thank you all for tuning in, for listening this far, if you made it this far. I know this was a longer episode than most, but we felt that we could no longer really spoon feed, but we needed to actually take the time out and educate as best we can. Please go check out Sean Rochester on YouTube called The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. It's a great presentation he has. He has about two or three of them up. They're about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and I know those are long, but they're really good. The last 30 minutes or hours are usually Q&A, so it's really an hour. And you guys just really listen and understand what he's saying. And like I said before, if you guys have any other links, people, any other forms of education that you guys would like us to touch upon or talk about, don't be afraid to DM me, Saran, the Two Fingers page, Gary Hardy on his Facebook, you know, just reach out to us and we would love to elaborate on the conversation and keep it going. And with that, the gym we always go out on, God, please grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And with that, Two fingers, peace and love. Two fingers, two up, two down. Two fingers, deuces. We out. How much longer will this linger? Stacking problems like jinga. Issues piss life with stingers. And I'm out. Two fingers.